Welcome to Gavel. I'm Don. And I'm Jonathan. Thank you for joining tonight. We're so glad that you're here. And what are we going to be discussing, Jonathan? Organ transplants. Organ transplants. Okay. And you know what? Definitely I, the most interesting one to research, right? I would, I would totally 100% agree. Of all the 19 or 20 episodes that we've released so far, this has got to be the best one to research of all the ones. There was so many different stories. We could have went 100 different ways. Now let's just hope that... If it was our best research, that it's our best episode. Ah, so. give us a shout out, please, if you like it. Anyways, okay, let's start off on uh, where where would you like to start? What year do you think we ought to start? Let's I think get we to should the start with the, the oh snap, Ooh. that was good. I think we should start with um, the story with David Hume doing that kind of off the books thing. Yeah, nineteen forty seven. Yes, sir. Okay, so why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about the story and, and so Hume, where it happened? This doctor, he's a Smart. He's a resident, actually, at this time in 1947, and he's trying to, you know, like a resident does, he's trying to show his place in the world, show his importance, and he's in charge of this 29-year-old woman that comes in, and she has renal failure. Yes, or this is in Boston, correct? Yes. Um, okay, Brigham, Brigham Hospital, Boston. Okay, so David Hume, he's in charge of a 29-year-old. Continue on. Renal failure, which, you know, she has kidney failure, and he decides to try a kidney transplant. Now... This is not sanctioned, uh-huh. and it's it's not unheard of. The only time people talk about transplants is sort of myths at this point, and it's, it's crazy myths. It's saying stuff like, oh, if we were able to do organ transplants, then we would have someone who received a heart from a murderer, and now they're going to be... Now they're going to be a they murderer. They turn murderous. Right. Yes. And there's actually okay. these legends that kind of came to play. Like, there was a guy who actually had a heart failure or heart disease, and they gave him a heart from a murderer, then he started killing people. Those Makes were actually sense. like campfire stories that were going around at the time. As well as doctors going into graveyards and robbing graves and stealing the organs. That's how far from reality this was for them. They had to. They had all these myths surrounding the subject because it wasn't a reality yet. That makes sense. Okay. So anyway, he decides that he can actually perform a kidney transplant because it has been done in dogs at this point. Yes, quite a few dogs. So he wants to try it on a human, and it's not that successful on dogs. But anyway, I digress. Back to the story of the 29-year-old woman dying from acute renal failure. He... Gets her on a gurney, gets her down the hall, and takes her to a room which is not an operating room. It's not room. an operating room. Yes, no. it's a storeroom. And it's only got, the crazy part, it's got terrible light. It only had two 60-watt bulbs in there. Yeah, gooseneck desk-like little lamps. Lamps, yes. And so he's sitting there, and, he, and he's in this dimly lit storage room, basically, a storeroom. And he is about to perform one of the greatest feats of medical history at this point. Yeah, so what they do is they take a kidney from a cadaver and they attach it to her forearm and they attach it to her blood vessels there and that's it. There's this thing called a ureter and the ureter is what normally connects your kidney to your bladder, Mm -hmm. but they just let the ureter run out into a bag. Yes. And that way the kidney creates the urine and runs it out the ureter. They don't have to reconnect it to the bladder. It's a simpler procedure. Yes. And they can see the kidney. He can see the kidney because they're not sure if it's going to work. Well, as soon as they connect it and release the clamps, the kidney fills with blood from the recent, very recently deceased cadaver. Mm Mm-hmm. And it starts producing urine right away. Right away. And these guys were ecstatic. Even though they had done this in secret, nobody knew they were doing it. And they weren't supposed to do it. It was unsanctioned. And they did it in the storeroom. They were so, they were so excited. 
They had attached a kidney to the woman's arm, and it was op- it was operable. It was working, and they were almost jubilant yeah. in the op in what they would call the operating room. They consider the operating room, yeah, because, where the operation took place. Exactly, yeah. because here we are. We've just performed the world's first kidney transplant on a human. On That's a human, right. yes. And they were ecstatic. So this didn't last long. It only lasted about four days, and then it started to discolor, turn gray, and they removed the kidney from her forearm. But by this time, her actual her kidney failure wasn't so bad anymore. Yes. So yes. they did t- the equivalent of what we would call dialysis. True. But instead of using a dialysis machine, they use a cadaver kidney. Correct. Yes, that makes good sense. To clean the blood, make the urine, and such. You know what's amazing to me is how and and i know we've got a long ways to go in this whole thing but to think that you had one kidney transplant in 1947 that was kind of more like dialysis and that they didn't put it in the abdomen all there's a lot of things to that and now just last year there was over 36,000 successful transplants in the united states alone we've come a long ways yeah you're right it has it is Definitely a drastic change from what it used to be and because it wasn't that long ago before those myths were around and it was also very even among doctors they said that it was unethical to perform organ transplants because they, they accused these transplant doctors of trying to play God. Yes, exactly. Like you think you're God by taking something from somebody here and putting it over here and and, and you're not God and you should leave that alone. Right. And so it was very to you the doctor's what? society at that point. Um, that profession, it was very unethical to do what they were doing. And it surprised me when I was researching this, the, when the doctors would kind of cite the Bible, they would say, well, it's appointed every man a time to die. They would quote some scripture when they were having these arguments. And I thought that was really interesting because it's, you know, it's, it's a lot more separate now yes, in today's world. Most definitely. Most definitely. So um, that takes us to an, another gentleman um, by the name of Joseph Murray. Yeah, that's right. Okay. We've, we're back to David Hume a little bit because David Hume was the head. So uh, David Hume, after his little underground transplant? Yes. Is that what you're trying to That's exactly talk right. About? Yes. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. So David Hume finalizes that, finishes that, and he recognizes they've got to get better at this. And so they began to deal with our transplant on dogs mm-hmm. and they because dogs were easily trainable they were easy to find you could find them at shelters etc and so they begin to get so many of these dogs um, and we do apologize to all the dog lovers out there but in their theory at the time the time said hey it's easier it's better to work on a dog than to work on a human right and so they were basically testing their theories of medicine on these dogs and into that setting came a man by the name of Dr. Joseph Murray. He was a 36-year-old man, and he would couple up with Dr. Hume. And they would begin performing all kinds of tests on these dogs. And they would test it, and they were actually very successful in transplanting different uh, organs into the dogs. Um, I know that sounds terrible now, but at the time, that was the that was the uh, the thing that they felt was the best way to go about it. Yeah, it was interesting to see. What I thought was cool was how they started with the transplants. First, they cut the kidney out and mm-hmm. put it back into the same dog. Into the same dog, yes. To see if it worked. Mm-hmm. And they did this with other organs as well. Yes. But let's just stick with the kidney for a minute. So take the kidney out and put it back. 
Well, then they would take the kidney out and attach it somewhere else, like to the Inner exterior, of the, yes. yeah, to the thigh. And then it would still work. I was like, okay, so that was pretty interesting. That's how they discovered the kidney would work on the 29-year-old woman's arm. Yes. Well, David Hume goes on to do nine more transplants from 1951 to 1953, this time sanctioned. So the hospital, some, you know, they hear about it, and I don't know why they didn't just immediately terminate his residency, but no, they don't. They didn't, they, at they didn't all. terminate no. him. They just go ahead and say, hey, why don't you go ahead and do this on actual human patients? Well, I think he had had so much success in the dog labs that perhaps that, 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 that they felt like he felt like he had advanced to a point where he could start doing it on humans and he convinced them of that. And it had to be a very special set of circumstances. The patient had to be terminally ill, like 100% going to die, not going to recover in order for him to get approval to try a transplant. Correct. And remember, these transplants at this time are coming from cadavers. Yes, yes. So he does nine transplants from the time frame that you said. Now, why don't you tell our listeners um, how many of those were successful? Maybe go into that a little bit. Well, only four of them showed any function at all, which okay. is function is what is determined by urine output. So out of the ureter would flow the urine. Only four of them showed function. And it was all very brief, just a matter of days. One transplant functioned for five and a half months. But okay. then at that point, it was rejected after five and a half months. Okay. And that was it. So, so he didn't understand why the outcomes were different than dogs. Some of this, when, it, when that patient lasted five and, a half, five and a half months, that's longer than almost all the dogs lived from their transplants. When they were transferred from one dog to another, the dogs were rejected more quickly than that. Yes. So, but still doesn't change the fact that he was over nine. Yeah, and there's also reports he performed five additional to those nine, but none of them were documented other than that they happened. There's no details on the death rates, but it's assumed that it's 100% because they were none of them were, there's no records of them other than that they happened. That makes sense. Okay. So that brings us to February 11th, 1953. Okay. And there was a man by the name of Patient W. And Patient W... Um, has this surgery, and three weeks after the surgery, his condition began to improve. It's improving drastically, and he actually had his kidney attached to his inner thigh. And so everything seems to be really working well. They don't, the first three weeks after his surgery, it seemed like he was going to pass away. But then miraculously, for some reason, after the three weeks, he started living. Yeah, I mean, he started getting better. They cannot still pinpoint why it is that this kidney surgery, transplant, organ donation was successful on him when it hadn't been successful for anybody else. And so he, two months later, he was the first patient to walk out or be discharged from a hospital with a new kidney. And he actually lived for six months until August of 1953. And then he passes away. Oh, yeah. But he is considered the first patient to be discharged from the hospital with a new kidney. Yeah, and that was one of his patients. That's the one I mentioned lived five and a half months. We got slightly different timing on that. Got it. But yeah, that's yes. that same patient. Okay. There. Yes, that makes sense. So um, that brings us to they realized that if you have they if you have identical twins, mm -hmm. that their DNA would be so similar that you could transplant a kidney from one to the other and it would be successful. Right. And so they start looking 
but it was very difficult because they had to find two identical t- twins and those two identical twins, one of them had to have kidney problems and the other did not. The other one had to be completely healthy in his kidneys. And so after months of searching, they finally find a man. It's October 26, 1954, it's in Boston. And this man's name is Richard Herrick. He was having acute kidney failure from scarlet fever that he'd had as a boy. Mm-hmm. And so he has a twin brother named Ronald And so he comes, they find him, and they recognize, hey, this is an identical twin, or we think he's an identical twin. Let's see if Ronald would be willing to donate his kidney to Richard. So they proposed it to Ronald. Hey, would you be willing to give your kidney to your brother? Let's see if this thing will work. And their sister was trying to talk him out of it. But Ronald said, you know what? This is the right thing to do. This is my brother. I love him. I'll give him my kidney. And he, the argument that they used for him is, look, there's lots of people that have been born with only one kidney. You're going to be okay. And so he went after it. Now, one of the interesting things to me of how much chance there was maybe in this, because he had to be an identical twin. Mm-hmm. He had to have the same ID or uh, DNA. But then they, they wanted to make sure that it would work. So they took one skin graft from one brother, put it on the other to see if his body would reject it. And it didn't. So they said, okay, the final test is we want to fingerprint them. And the head of the kidney department said, fingerprint them. And if they have the same fingerprints, then I'll let you proceed with the surgery. Now there's yeah, no human that has the same 10 fingers of fingerprints. Mm-hmm. No human, even identical twins don't have the same fingerprints. And yet they, they wheeled them both down to the police station. Oh, what's crazy about that too. They get to the police station and there just happens to be a reporter there. And that reporter would end up telling the story and it would become a worldwide news flash. But What's most interesting to me is that nine out of the 10 fingerprints of both brothers were identical. Identical? They were identical. And that's why the head of the department said, because at that time they thought that identical twins had identical fingerprints. Mm -hmm. And so he gave his permission because they had nine of 10 fingerprints. If they would have only had five fingerprints similar, he wouldn't have let them proceed. That's crazy. I didn't know it was possible to have the same fingerprints as someone else. I did not either. But that was one of the things that I found in my research, that nine of ten of their fingerprints were an exact match. Oh, interesting. I thought it was nine points out of ten of similarities. So what does that mean? I don't know. What's interesting to me, though, is how much, I mean, what are the odds that they would even have that much similarity well that and they're dotting their eyes and crossing their t's look how thorough they're being because this is the first time that they're taking the organ from a, a living patient yes so that's why they're being so much more careful with this case yes and, and go ahead so they're dotting their eyes crossing their t's making sure this is 100 percent because this is the first time the organ's coming from a living donor yes yes they're, otherwise they're always taken from cadavers this is the first time it's taken from a living donor and, and given on, to a living donor uh, a living person right okay and on top of that, somehow this reporter just happens to be at the right place at the right time to pick up on this story. So not only were they being super careful already, but now they have the press. Involved. Now they ha- and they have national attention 
to something that they didn't want any attention to at all. They yeah. were just trying to make this happen and work their way through it. That's right. The, that uh, reporter printed some kind of article that says the fi- the life of this man hangs the, in the balance on a fingerprint. Yes. Something along those lines. And now Murray has an ethical dilemma. Okay. After all this checking and double checking and dotting of the I's, crossing of the T's, he is uneasy about taking an organ from a living patient and giving it to someone who's probably going to die or will die. Mm-hmm. And a fellow surgeon confronted him and says, Murray, what are you doing? Are you trying to play God here? This guy's fine. He's living fine. You're going to take an organ from him? And so Murray, he goes to clergymen. He goes to friends and family. He asks what they think about this situation. Hey, is it okay to take a an organ from a live patient and give it to one that's dying? Is it almost like he felt like he was casting his pearls before swine? Kind of like you're, you're what do you throwing mean? something away that... Um, you're wasting it on something that may not it may not help anyway so that's a waste is that kind of what he was I think it was more along the lines of like the Hippocratic Oath like you do no harm he's trying to save him and he didn't want to cause harm to a living patient who was um, not sick at all makes sense okay right and that yes. was the that was the quandary got it so finally he talks to one of his his old army buddies because he's he's a uh, active service or I think he's got his time to leave or something too. Yes, he was active practice. service in the Korean War. So finally, he talks to one of his army buddies, and he reminds them that, hey, man, in the military, we lay down our lives, risk our lives every day to save our fellow man and to defend our country. Yes. And that's when it clicks for Murray. He thinks, okay, you're right. So this brother is trying to save his brother from dying, and he's willing to lay down his life or in this case, risk his life mm-hmm. in order to save his, his younger brother or twin brother, not younger brother. Yes. So it's, so it's worth it. Yeah. And so that, that resolves that his resolved ethical, the ethical dilemma. dilemma. Got it. Okay. So now that patient would survive for eight years. Whoa. Eight years. And he would have two children. He would live a normal life. He would work a normal job. Everything would be great. That is incredible. Now, one thing we did kind of skip over is because it's a little, it gets into some complexity. And as we use the term getting into the weeds, how they figured this out is Dr. Hume and Dr. Murray, they consulted an old scientific, or not old in that time. It was four years prior to when they were, and it was a scientific study about skin grafts. Okay. And what it was is skin grafts about cows. Okay. And they found when they give cows skin grafts as they were fraternal twins or identical twins, either way, the skin grafts worked almost every time. Hmm. And they didn't know why. Well, they figured out that the cows shared placentas and they exchanged blood and they had even fraternal twins, male and female, had similar hormones and DNA. That way there would no be no organ rejection. Got it. Okay. They realized that twins had a much better Succession rate, yes, right? And so what they did is they made it, they decided to move on to rats and say, okay, can we recreate this in rats? Because rats don't share placentas. So they took pregnant rats, took the little uh, fetuses and injected the fetus with like another rat's spleen cells. And then that fetus now had two different types of cells in the, in the uh, embryo, not the embryo, the embryonic sac. Mm. And because of that, the rat developed with two different DNAs. Wow. Then they would skin graft this hybrid rat or a chimeric rat, they call it, with two different DNAs from the donor. And the rat would accept 
the skin graft. So it would have two DNAs, and, yes. and those two DNAs would cause it to accept. They read this scientific paper. That's where they got the idea of skin grafting looking for identical twins. That's, that's awesome because I hadn't I hadn't researched that part. That is great. So that came from these people. They didn't just start experimenting on humans. That's why I wanted to kind of give a little background on this. Yes. Even though it's a lot, I skipped over a lot of complexity in there. But I wanted you to understand that it was done on rats and cows long before we understood that it would work on twin humans. Yes. No, but that makes total that's, sense. I want that to be clear that we didn't understand DNA at this point. The DNA genome wasn't mapped until 2001. 2001, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Way later. So we didn't understand what DNA, how complex DNA was. We still don't, by the Correct. way. Yes. But anyway, that was way off track or not that's off That's all right. Track, we like rabbit trails on Gabble. That was a little deep. Yes. So moving on, what, what do you have next there, Don? Um, I was going to talk about uh, James Russell. Okay. Um, if you're ready to delve into that a little bit. Yeah, let's bit. do it. So there was a man named James Russell. James Russell was um, Missis- in Mississippi. He was actually in a Mississippi prison. And he was on death row with lung cancer. And so um, he was actually the recipient of the first lung transplant. And because of his contribution to science, he would be given a pardon for his, you know, for his help to the medical community. Oh, because he volunteered? Because he volunteered. Yes. Wow. The, the sad part um, is he, he died 19 days later. So the lung transplant only worked for 19 days. Okay. However, it still was a start. And so to me, it's amazing how... You go from kidneys and then the progression of these guys where these doctors continued to say, hey, we are going to keep looking at different organs and transplanting different organs. And so James Russell would become the first recipient of a lung transplant. Now, how did they find all of this? How did they figure out that they could do this? They did it because people would donate their loved ones' bodies to medical science. So going back just very quickly mm-hmm. to these twins. Oh yeah. And Richard Herrick, who is the first, you know, recipient from from his twin brother Ronald. So he survived eight eight years. He had two children. Now he had met his wife when he was recovering from this transplant surgery. She was a nurse in his very ward of the hospital where he was at. And they fell in love during his time of recovery, and they got married. So he lives eight years after that. He has two kids with her. But she recognizes the very important medical contribution that somebody's death would be if a scientist or a medical scientist could study those bodies. And so she, when Richard died, she called the doctor who had done the transplant. And she said, I recognize how much this would mean to you all. So I am donating his body for medical science. Whoa. And he not only was the first kidney recipient from a living person, but he ended up having his body um, donated for medical science. And it would be on his body that they would discover so many different and new things about how to transplant different organs. Interesting. And so we, that brings us back to James Russell 
and James Russell. How could they know that they could transplant a lung to him? And I, I'm sure you study James Russell, too. You may have more info or, or more to dig in deeper into his story. But that was a result of that first kidney transplant with Rick Herrick. You know, you mentioned that Dave uh, Russell and uh, James Russell, James yes. Russell, he gets out of prison. You said he was pardoned, but he only lived 19 days. How how long after he was pardoned was he released? How many days of freedom did he have? I That I don't know. Don't, it must not. Man, that's it wasn't sad. very much at all. In fact, he might have been pardoned after he passed. I can't remember. No, no, it had to be before. He was pardoned before, but it was just a matter of days. Man. Yes, just a matter of yeah, days. Yeah, I just thought about that when you mentioned that. Yes, he died 19 days later, so yeah. So that brings us to another story that I think, uh, moving away from kidneys, moving away from lungs. Let's get to the heart. Okay. All right. This, yeah, this upcoming story is crazy, but I don't want to... Yeah, let's just so let, let's dive into it. it. One, go ahead. Why don't you uh, give us a little background? So it's talk January 1964. There's this Dr. Hardy who is waiting for the ideal transplant recipient to perform a heart transplant because mm-hmm. he wants to be the first doctor. Because the first one to do this is gonna be famous. Yes, and gets a lot some, of accolades. Some doctors like the fame and the accolades. Yes, no doubt. So. The problem is he finally has the ideal, this, this isn't the problem, but he finally has the ideal patient that needs a heart. Okay. And he has a donor in the same hospital. Mm. But there's a problem. Okay. The donor is still alive. Mm. Now the donor's heart is still beating, but the donor is brain dead. Okay. Meaning they have this EEG machine that detects brain signals. It's not detected nothing. Yes. And this person's being kept alive on a respirator. Okay. So their body's not breathing on its own. A machine is breathing for them. But at this time, the definition of death is what cessation of heartbeat. Yes. So, so it had the heart. If the had heart to is stop. still beating. Yep. They were still alive. That's right. Yes. So even though this person is brain dead, Hardy cannot remove the heart because. Legally, he's still alive. And ethically, because everybody honored this, the heartbeat is life Yes, at this time. So, but there is, this is crazy, there is a donor. There's another donor. Uh, so there's one donor that's still technically still alive. alive. So they can't. And there's a second donor? There's a second donor. This donor's downstairs, and he's not sick, and he's not dying. At all. But... We could still re- they could still retrieve his heart, yes. and it's not unethical. Yes, because that donor is a chimpanzee. Chimpanzee, bro, it's unbelievable. <laughs> this story is awesome. So it's okay to take a monkey's heart because you know they don't have souls or whatever their understanding is at this time. Yes. So he puts the patient on a heart lung machine once they bypass the heart. Whose name was Boyd Rush, by the way. Mm-hmm. Boyd Rush is on the heart or on the. He's on a machine. The okay. moment they connect the machine, his heart stops. Yes. So Hardy, Hardy decides time has run out, and he goes and sends them to get the chimpanzee. Yes. Now, this is a research hospital, so there's they have the animals that they work on several floors below. That's why there's animals here, by the way, in case you're wondering. Yes. But this wasn't planned too far in advance. This is something that was a last-ditch effort. It had to be a last-ditch effort because, because their patient number one, we'll call it patient number donor. one, donor number one, is still alive. alive. Yeah. And they actually waited, from my understanding, they waited 90 minutes for her 
heart to stop beating. And after that 90 minutes when her heart still hadn't stopped beating, that's when he made the decision to go to donor number two. Yeah. So they get the chimpanzee, they prep him, they remove his heart, and they take this little heart and they place it into the recipient, and immediately everybody sees a problem. And the problem is the chimpanzee heart is tiny. It's too small. Yes. It is way too small. So they put the paddles in. How they do the heart transplant is they hook it up to the all the art, reconnect all the arteries, and then they put paddles in and they shock it directly right on the heart. Right on the heart, yes. And when that shocking happens, the the heart will flutter, and then it should, if everything goes correctly, that heart should start beating again in the new patient. Yes, and the chimpanzee heart starts beating. It starts off. beating. It was beating. <laughs> in that man's chest cavity but the problem is because it's so small it's not pumping enough blood it pump to keep, all the blood yes right to keep the brain oxygenated to keep the patient alive exactly so they immediately connect a pacemaker yes to force the heart to beat faster so this is happening very quickly the, the doctor connects a pacemaker forces the heart to beat faster even though this little heart is beating faster it's not enough to keep the brain oxygen because the 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 weight of the chimpanzee was not up to the same weight yes, as the man half the bio mass right exactly so it couldn't it couldn't keep up so he's got it on the pacemaker what happens next so he's on the pacemaker but it's still not enough blood and everybody sees what's happening the patient is fading the heart is beating quickly but it's not enough the doctor gets desperate and reaches directly into the chest cavity and starts massaging the heart to force the blood out of the heart and throughout the body to kind of to this so is he's doing his own version almost of CPR with his hands. Yes. Forcing he's beating that heart with his hands, forcing the blood, trying to get this heart to stay up and hoping that he can keep this man alive long enough that something will happen and maybe it would trigger this heart to go faster or something. Open heart massage is something that is done, but not after the pacemaker's put in. They do it like before pacemaker's put in. So Correct. this is like him being really desperate here. Well, all in all, this goes on for 90 minutes. 90 minutes, yes. They he finally stops and they just watch. All the medical staff just watches as the heart slowly slows down. Slows down. Beats slower and slower. And after 90 minutes elapses, it finally stops. It stopped. And... As amazing as that story is, what's so incredible is that would become the first human heart transplant. Yeah, but the donor wasn't a human. Isn't that wasn't crazy? A human. It I was cannot a believe this happened. How have, how have I never heard about this? What I want to know is, could they have taken a bigger chimpanzee? It obviously would have worked. It, it worked for 90 minutes. Well, if you could have got one of equal weight... Could that have worked properly? Well, if I entertain that thought for a second, definitely not because of what we know about the immune response. Yes. Because they didn't understand, like we like we mentioned already, the DNA wasn't mapped. The human genome wasn't mapped till 2001. We Correct. didn't understand immune response at this time. So I, I, I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no too, but it did work for 90 minutes. Yeah. It which did is work. Inc- That's incredible. Yeah, a, a man lived with a chimpanzee, heart, chimpanzee heart for 90, 90 minutes. minutes. It's just nuts. It's just crazy. Sounds like you're making something up, but it's true. First human heart transplant. Okay. So this doctor was shunned by all these other medical professionals, doctors, and everybody and their mother was against this guy for not only playing God, 
But but using an animal. Yes. Using an animal's heart. Yeah, it was very a very strange ordeal, as you can imagine. And because of all the negative press, he actually quit doing transplants and started doing something. I think he went into like plastic surgery plastic or surgery. something. He did, yes. What well, and that's sad in and of itself because all of his knowledge and and even though some people may not have agreed with it at the time, he still had boatloads of knowledge. Um, that was kind of lost to the medical science community at that time. Yeah. Well, a couple of things we forgot to mention. Did we did we tell everybody that David Hume went back to war? He got called back into war? Um, I think we kind of mentioned it, but, but let's talk about it a little so bit. So he got called back into war, and then the other doctor had to take over and take over the transplants. And what David Hume always did, all nine of his transplants, plus the five or six that are kind of undocumented, mm-hmm. he always placed the kidney on the outside of the body, the thigh of the arm. And they were cadaver kidney. Yeah, always cadavers, okay. that's right. Well, the new doctor that took over, he started placing the kidney back into the abdomen and reconnecting the ureter to the bladder. And he was more successful than David Hume was. So the next big story in this organ transplant is going to be something incredible. And that happens on December 3rd, 1967. Yes. So there is a, a doctor by the name of Christian Bernard. Yes. He's in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And while he's there, he's trying to do this, this transplant. He's got an organ donor, which is a, a woman. And then he has uh, a man, I believe, that he is going to be um, doing the transplant to. But he's waiting. There again, remember, the patient has to die. The heart has right, to right. stop beating. And so they're waiting on the. She was brain dead. And so they were waiting on her heart to stop. And it wasn't stopping. And they wait and they wait and they wait and still not stopping. And finally, the team of doctors looks at each other and one of them says, hey, I know what let's do. Let's give Denise, I believe that was the patient, or yeah. the, uh, the, okay, let's give her a shot of potassium. Oh. Now, think about this. Potassium is what they inject in somebody when they're giving them lethal injection. Yeah. Okay. It's going to stop the heart. It's going to stop the heart. And these guys knew this is going to stop this person's heart. Her heart was not stopped yet. But they said, let's give her potassium. He takes this, he basically asks, how does everybody feel about this? And nobody said a word. So he took that as consent. Oh. And he says, all right, we're doing it. Give her a shot of potassium. And when he gave him a shot of potassium, it stopped the patient's heart. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're going to go according to the ethics of the time, that was pure murder. Uh, in the United States, yes, in the but United that was in States, South but Africa. But it was in South Africa, which, so it didn't it didn't count. Mm-hmm. But if that would have been done in the, in fact, that's why it hadn't been done in the United States, because the United States couldn't get a patient to pass away, and the heart to stop, with the timing just right to be able to place that. In fact, this Christian Bernard had learned from his American predecessors, right, and so. Um, it was, they gave her potassium and basically according, there again, according to American standards, they murdered this woman to get her heart. They took her heart and placed it in the patient and that would become the first heart-to-heart transplant from human to human. And it was very successful. And from that, Christian Bernard 
would go on to become a major celebrity. He would meet with presidents. He would meet with princes. He would meet with great um, music stars and all these Hollywood stars and all that. He would meet with all of them all because he was the first doctor to perform a heart transplant from human to human. Yeah, that is crazy. But I mean, it's we can't really call it murder because that was in 67 and, and just in 72, I think Virginia made it legal because they determined that brain dead was death. Yes. Now, I totally agree with that. I'm just saying according to the ethics of the oh, time. Oh, definitely. Yes. To the definition of the time, it would have it was murder. Yeah, so that story prompts this emergency meeting with the National Heart Institute. The leading cardiac surgeons from around the United States gathered together in Chicago for this meeting to talk about the ethics of death. And what we're talking about ethics of death, what I mean is the legal definition of, of death. death. Yes, because at this time, remember, it's still that when the heart stops beating, that's when death occurs. That's right. And they just lost the, the race to the first heart transplant. So there's this emergency meeting. And you have to consider, sorry, I, I interrupted again. I apologize, but I'm so excited. Um, the content is incredible. Um, what, while you had this heart race, the heart race was almost just like the race to the moon. So you had different countries vying to get to the moon first. Mm -hmm. You had different hospitals in different countries vying to do the first heart transplant. So that's why there was such this was such a big deal. It was literally a race to see who could get it done the first. Right. And because of this meeting, they were able to lobby and actually get Virginia to I to change the legal definition of death from cessation of heart to also include brain death brain death yes so either stopping of the heart or you know brain death meaning no signal no pupillary response when you shine a light in your mm -hmm. eye and no signals on it uh, i think it's called the eeg machine yes so it was either or is that correct right so you could heart either or brain. it was either heart or brain you could go either direction you could legally be uh, declared dead and then other states promptly adapted the same the same legislation. Yes, and that happened fairly quickly after Virginia did it. Yeah, I think it was 70, and then by the time 72 hit, pretty much every state adopted it. Yes. So once the legal definition was changed, uh, a gentleman named Norm Shumway, in January 6, 1968, he performs a heart transplant and is successful, it, but the patient dies 14 days later. So Norm Shumway, he's really disheartened that his first heart transplant, which is, I believe is the second ever in the United States that was performed, mm -hmm. died so quickly. He thought it was maybe his method. So he went back to the dog lab, as they called it, and started performing heart transplants on dogs. And he did hundreds, over a thousand, and in fact, transplants of hearts of dogs wow. to perfect his technique of retying blood vessels and his timing and and doing all the surgery. And the amount of work that goes into being a surgeon is just incredible. The amount of hours they have to have before operating on a human patient. I didn't realize it was so extensive. Yes, yeah. Anyway, Norm Shumway, after he protect, uh, perfects his technique, he then proceeds to go back to heart transplants. But going back to heart transplants, we discover more about immune response and we understand the medical, when I say we, I mean the medical society, mm -hmm. they understand immune response a lot better. And so what they do is they come out with these organ rejection medications. So they're called immunosuppressants. Okay. What they do is they suppress your immune system a little bit. 
And it's a very delicate balance. If they give you too much immune suppression, then you're very likely to get infections, infections and die. Yes. So if you get the flu or something, you have no immune system because it's completely suppressed and the flu could kill you or any infection. Makes sense. Okay. On the other hand, if they don't give you enough suppression, then your body... Then your body will... Re- the organ will reject... The, the body the will reject the organ. That's yes. right. Exactly right. Because your immune system only sees self and foreign... And if it sees something that's foreign, which in this case is an organ, it's going to say, oh, foreign, and then start attacking it. Okay. That is why your body rejects something. It just sees foreign. Got it. Okay. So anyway, they figured that out. That's what immunosuppressants are for. With the immunosuppressant breakthrough, Norm Shumway comes back to doing heart transplants again, gives patients immunosuppressants, and does 800 heart transplants before he retires. Wow. Okay. So my question is, what year or around what time frame... Did they discover this suppressants thing? It was right around the same time, so right around 1970. Okay, is All the right. immune suppressants were so he's doing. He's working on dogs, and while he's working on dogs, they discover this. He he brings it into practice and ends up performing over 800 heart transplants before be, he retires. Before yeah. he retires, because of the what what did you call it again? Amino amino suppressants. Amino suppressants. Yes. Okay. Wow. He retired in 1993 for kind of a reference of when all that took place. Got it. Okay. But to start the heart race, when Christian Barnard did the first transplant, it only took 12 months after that for 47 other medical teams in 18 different countries to perform 100 transplants. So people were very quickly trying to catch up to this guy and say, hey, we did it too. But 40 of them died within a couple days. Mm. And then... By, by the three-month mark, over two-thirds of them had died. And because of so many people dying from heart transplants, they kind of tapered off of it until those immunosuppressants came into play. Got it. Okay. That's to give you a little sense of time. And that was around 1970. Makes sense. Makes good sense. Um, but by the mid-70s, late-70s, people started living much longer than a year after transplants. And today, numbers are great. If I mean, kidney transplants is something like 90%. Yes, alive 15 years later so i have a very good friend whose mother um has had i believe two kidney transplants and it is just amazing she's lived for many many years and with great quality of life now i i have to thank these scientists and medical researchers researchers for all that they've done regarding the kidney, et cetera, because it's not just about transplants, but they've learned so much about kidneys, hearts, lungs, et cetera. My mother is, um, she was a a stage three cancer patient and um, they actually took her kidney out. She only has one kidney now. And, um, but that research that they did in all of this transplant is what made it possible for them to know what they know to be able to help my mother. And so there's there's a lot to this that I'm very grateful for the people that gave their time, energy, and, and lives to to help this this science improve and become incredible as it is today. Yeah, it was multiple lifetimes of research. When I mentioned those guys that did the experiments on cows, and then they determined that the placentas were attached in cows and yes. the rats, that was three different people. And this scientific paper combined those three people's research. So that was over decades of research of three different 
uh, medical scientists that discovered different things. One discovered placentas attached and they connect hormones. One discovered that they exchanged blood and then another person determined that they did the rats. So it was a lot of lifetimes that went through of this research. Which makes it even more um, incredible to me that you have these doctors that are racing to try to become the first at this and the first at that. And I get that there is some professional um, you know, a desire to, to be the first professional to accomplish certain things. But look at what but, they're doing. Well, what I look at it, though, is when you have all of that going on, it's not what you accomplish. It's what you contribute. And to me, that's the way they should have been looking at it. It's not, ooh, I want to be the first one to do a heart transplant. It's what can I contribute to the overall greater success of whoever ends up doing it in the end. Okay, well, what if I just change the optics just a little bit? Okay. And let's say the doctor is, I want to be the first one to perform a heart transplant so I can be the man that saves hundreds and thousands of people from heart disease every year. That you could have truly pure motives like that. That's true. You know, pure ambition could be there. I, I could see that. But for those who did not have that, um, it, takes, it takes so many people doing so much research that one person couldn't have figured all this out on their own. Right. They, yeah, no. You had to have a team of people, one pulling research 10 years before the other, but somewhere their combined medical knowledge is what made it possible. And that's the way it all works here. Even today, they're still learning and, and building on the building blocks that was set forth by, by people years ago. And so I wanna thank all of those people for all of the research, all of the time, all of the energy, because we know we know today because somebody built a foundation for us to build on yeah. years ago. Yeah, gave their life in research and or, or as a surgeon. That's am it's amazing. I, I looked up the numbers here just so we have a little bit of some facts. Kidney transplants, 95% of patients are still alive 20 years later. Lung, pancreas, liver, all these transplants, the survival rates are higher than that and climbing every year. Wow, that's awesome. Heart transplants, more than half are alive seven years after the transplant. So they are doing way exponentially better yes, than yes. they were in the 70s. Most, most definitely. So that's pretty much all I have, Don, for organ transplants. Do you have anything more to say? I always have tons of things to say, Jonathan, but uh, I think I'm good on this subject now, for now at okay, least. sounds good. Well, stay tuned for next week, guys, because we have a crazy episode coming oh, up. Oh, it's going to be amazing. As if this one wasn't crazy enough with the monkey art, or, yes. <laughs> or chimpanzee, rather. <laughs> anyway, if you want to reach out to us, you can at thegabblepodcast at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-G-A-B-L podcast at gmail.com. We love to hear your show suggestions, and we love to hear from you guys in general. So write us an email. Send them on in. Tell us what you think. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, don't forget to leave a five-star review. That really helps us out. Anywhere else, don't forget to subscribe so you get to hear the next time we release an episode. And that's all. We'll talk to you guys next time. Adios.